Today I want to pick up where we left off last week in Colossians 2. Some of you may recall that I mentioned that in the book of Colossians there were some false teachers there, and those false teachers had infiltrated the church, and they were now beginning to tell the Christians there, the saints there, that they needed something more than what Paul proclaimed to them, which was Christ and him crucified. They needed something more than just simple faith in Jesus' accomplishments alone to save them and to strengthen them and to secure them and motivate them to live a spiritual life. These false teachers taught that Jesus' work needed legalistic rules, mystical experiences and directions, and ascetic disciplines to truly set Christians apart from the world. But here in Colossians, we we will learn that Paul proclaimed that Christ has already accomplished that work. He has already set us apart at the cross. There, he received the penalty for our sins and imputed to us or credited to us his righteousness that will not only secure us eternally, but it will sanctify us practically as we think about this great gift that he's granted us by his grace. We are now counted as children of God, loved by God as if we are God the Son. We can't add to that work. It is accomplished. We can rejoice in it and we can be motivated by it, but we don't need to prop it up with legalism or mysticism or asceticism. We see that here in Colossians 2. There in 2, and this morning we'll look at 18 to to 3, 4 in a few moments, but here Paul will go on to say that biblical sanctification simply flows from a heart that's been regenerated by Christ, not self-righteous rules or, again, mystical experiences or ascetic practices. Matter of fact, in chapter 3 of Colossians, we'll see next, next time that Sanctification will take place in the regenerated heart, the regenerated person's life practically. You'll see it in the relationship between wives and husbands and children and employers and employees. There is a progressive divine power of sanctification taking place in us by God's grace, not through something that we do on our own. And today I want to help you understand that. I want to help you understand that that God's Normative or biblical means of sanctification is empowered in our hearts, in our lives, by number one, God the Holy Spirit, number two, His Word, and number three, His church. You're experiencing that this morning. This is God's normative means of setting you apart from the world. It is you that are gathered together this morning in Christ that are being progressively cleansed and purified and directed by God's Holy Spirit into his word so that you can go into the world and declare the glory of Christ. I want you to understand something about the doctrine of of sanctification. The doctrine of sanctification is an ongoing progressive work of God. Now, there is a part that we play in it, but we don't sanctify ourselves It's because we have been set apart in Christ that we long to be set apart in holiness. Practically, visibly, progressively. 
we're being set apart to magnify Christ. And that's what we want. That's what we long for as Christians, isn't it? We want Jesus to be glorified through the church, through our ongoing transformation in conformity to Christ's image. We want the world to see Jesus at work in us so that he is praised, not only here in the church, but on the last day when Christ comes. The world will have to say that group of people belonged to Jesus and it was visible to us. This work of setting us apart progressively is something that the Holy Spirit does in all believers, not just the super spiritual ones, not just those who have super mystical experiences, but there are normal means by which the Holy Spirit works to conform us to Christ. And I want to look at some of that today with you. There's a normal means that God's given to us to transform our internal motivation for holiness. And it comes through the scriptures. It comes through studying God's word. And the Holy Spirit illuminating the truth. Transforming our minds. Renewing our minds. So that we now long for the things that God longs for in us. And we pursue them practically according to his directions, not mystical experiences. And today I pray we'll see how God's means of sanctification, his normative means of sanctification, will motivate us internally to live a holy life practically and do so ultimately for his glory. And so with that said, now open God's word with me to Colossians 2. We'll begin reading in verse 16. We'll do a little bit of review and I'll give you an outline so that you'll know what we've covered so far and what we're going to cover today. But first, let's hear God speak clearly from his word in Colossians 2:16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you or defraud you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous or fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. It's from God. If or since with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used? according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body. But, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. If or since then, you have been raised with Christ. Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, 
seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Verses 1 to 4 there in chapter 3. Paul's saying, since you've already been set apart in Christ, you went to the cross with him, you were raised with him from the grave. Fix your minds on the things above. Don't look at the earthly, elemental principles of fleshly, sensuous-minded people, rules and regulations and mystical experiences. You have experienced complete regeneration. The promise of completed sanctification and progressive sanctification through Christ's resurrection. He is your life. In other words, his life has been imputed to you. It's been given to you. You are seen by God the Father as if you are as righteous as Jesus Christ. Now, he's saying, set your minds on these things. Why? Well, because the false teachers were trying to set their minds on earthly, human, self-made religion. He says, look, if your mind's fixed upon the glorious truth that is found in the work of Christ, the completed work of Christ that has set you apart for eternity, you're not going to be drifting off into the earthly. You're actually going to be motivated To live a godly life because you are set apart, not to be set apart. It's not to achieve sanctification that we live a godly life. We live a godly life out of the joy of knowing that we have been forgiven. We have been atoned for by Christ. We have been set free from sin's domination and its penalty. So therefore we live joyfully, right? Thankfully. And holy because of what Christ has done, not what we can do. Listen, I I think it's wrong to think that we need to try to live a holy life. You don't try to live a holy life. You, You desire to live a holy life, yes. But I think if you're so focused on trying to live a holy life, you're not really looking at the reality here. If you're looking at the reality that God has imputed to you his righteousness in Christ his righteous offering of Christ. Your motive is you want to live in holiness knowing that you're not there yet. Trying to be holy is like trying to say that I'm trying to be a Christian. You either are or you're not. In God's eyes, you are holy. And because of that, you long to live a holy life, not to obtain it, not to secure it, But in light of it, you want to live holy and pure lives that will magnify the one who paid your penalty. See, your holy life simply magnifies Jesus. It says what he did really counted. It really changed you. You have been conformed. You are being conformed into his image progressively. It's a testimony of your salvation. It doesn't obtain it, though. You understand? That's what Paul's flustered about here. 
these false teachers were trying to say, you, you've got to sustain your salvation, your sanctification by following these rules. And they took their eyes off of Christ in doing that and put their eyes on themselves. And Paul can't stand that. Paul can't stand that even when he tried to do that. He says, I, I put no confidence in the flesh. His confidence is in Christ. Well, last week we covered some of that, and I'm going to give you a quick review so that you'll all be together on this this morning. Last week we learned that Paul sought to guard the sheep under his care in three ways by declaring three things to them. He was reminding his readers that, number one, the shadow of legalism cannot supplement eternal salvation. The shadow of legalism cannot supplement your salvation. Okay, that's what he meant. Then he, then he told us, began to tell us in verse 18 and into 19 where I left off, that number two, the experience of mysticism, the experience of mysticism will not strengthen biblical sanctification. It will not strengthen God's means of sanctification. Because you have a mystical experience. It doesn't make you more holy or spiritually superior than anyone else. It will not do that. It is earthly. Mystical experiences, according to this text, are earthly, not godly. We'll pick up in a few moments in verses 18 and 19 and look at that some more. But the third thing that I mentioned last week and that we didn't get to and that we're going to try to cover today is the practice of asceticism. The harsh treatment of the body to try to perfect yourself, to humble yourself by treating your flesh harshly. The practice of asceticism does not, does not sustain spiritual motivation for holiness. He's actually going to say this is fleshly. Treating yourself harshly, trying to atone for your sins, trying to make up for your, your deficiencies by treating your body harshly, abstaining from certain things, saying that I'm more spiritual because I don't drink this or I don't smoke or I don't partake of these kinds of activities and I'm going to treat my body harshly. I'm going to fast 40 days during Lent so that I'll be more spiritual. No, it doesn't sustain the motivation for sanctification. Outward means cannot transform the inward desires. It's the inward desire that transforms the outward behavior. And it's the inward desire that motivates spiritual sanctification. And that comes through a very special means that God's given us here in this testimony that Paul points to repeatedly. It's the resurrection of Christ. The accomplishment of Christ. He's basically going to say when we get to point three is... Simply this, what motivates, what sustains sanctification and a godly desire in the heart is reflecting on the work of Christ. Because you have been raised up with him, seek the things that he desires. It's because your heart has been transformed, you want to live differently in the world. But let me give you a quick review of what we covered, okay? Last week in Colossians 2, 16 and 17, we learned that the Apostle Paul boldly reminded weak Christians, spiritually weak Christians, that, number one, the shadow of legalism cannot supplement eternal salvation. 
There in 16 and 17, he boldly states that we should not let anyone judge us by the shadow of legalism. He, he reminds us that we shouldn't be intimidated by a legalist. They're living in the shadows, and we have been brought into the light by Christ himself. They're, they're living in the past, looking at the shadows that pointed maybe to Christ in the Bible, but then they add their own human traditions on top of that, which deviated from Scripture, and they're living in those shadowy areas and not realizing that the substance has already came in Christ. He fulfilled all the righteous requirements for us. They're living in the dark. Don't be intimidated by the legalist. He tells us that our salvation needs no shadowy supplementation. He says the substance of our salvation is based on Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' obedience alone, not ours. He fulfilled the law for us. Hallelujah. And the substance of his work not only secures our salvation, but he'll tell us in the next few passages that it also strengthens biblical sanctification in our hearts. It's not the outward part that we're focusing on. We're to be focusing on Christ. When we focus on Christ, it changes the heart. And the desires of the flesh are conformed, transformed, by the renewing of the mind, therefore we pursue righteousness out of the joy of the truth that's given to us in Christ. That changes the outward man. Our behavior does change as Christians, does it not? It should. Your life was set apart to magnify Jesus. Matter of fact, you can read enough scripture in the New Testament to see that you're saved unto good works. The purpose of your redemption is to magnify the work of Jesus Christ. That means there will be a transformation in every true believer's life. But it's not done from the outside in. It's done from the inside out. And when we fall short of that transformation, we rejoice in repentance that brings us back to the cross, the source of our redemption. And we rejoice and pursue God out of thankfulness at that point. Further on in the text there in Colossians 2, 18 and 19, we started this last week and I didn't finish, but it says that Paul, as we look at this, Paul powerfully rebukes these false teachers here. And, and at the same time, he, he reminds the church that, number two, the experience of mysticism will not sustain or strengthen biblical sanctification. Mysticism, an experience of mysticism, a mystical experience, a subjective Feeling, emotion, thought will not strengthen biblical sanctification. It doesn't need any propping up from experience is what I mean by that. It's the work of God in the heart and it is cultivated not by a mystical experience but by God's means of grace. Last week I told you that what, what Paul's doing here is he's, he's dealing with these, these false teachers that were trying to intimidate the Christians there at Colossae, with their boasts. And so Paul is, is boldly and powerfully saying that the body of Christ should not let anyone disqualify us by a supposed mystical experience that they had. A dream, a vision, a visitation from an angelic being, thinking that that makes them superior, spiritually superior to you, and therefore they can dictate to you what you need to do to become better Christians. 
Matter of fact, those are the kind of people you want to stay away from, biblically speaking. We need no experience outside of Scripture. If you need a mystical experience to prop up your faith, your faith is not in Christ. Now, our faith is mysterious. Our faith is a gift. We can't fully understand all the truths that are in Christ, the Trinity, right? Eternity. Can you wrap your mind around that one? Eternal life. But we trust in that because that is given to us in Scripture. It's inscripturated. Therefore, our faith, our trust, is in what God's means of grace tells us. Not what we experience or redefine through our experiences. Don't you know that the heart of man is deceitfully wicked? You can't trust your heart. You can't trust your experiences. They're not going to make you more spiritual. And sometimes we need to be reminded of that because there are people around us that have these so-called spiritual experiences that make us feel very intimidated. They hear God speak, supposedly. Well, I hear him speak every time I read the Bible out loud, but that's the only place God speaks out loud. We don't need to have a voice in our head. We have the inerrant, sufficient Word of God himself, the living word of God himself that speaks clearly, and I don't have to doubt whether it's him or not. A mystical experience is so subjective, there's no way to know if it is from God or from Satan. So you can't trust your experience. That's what Paul's telling them here. Because these men in verse 18, it says, Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind. He says these men are are claiming by their humility that they were able to receive divine messages. They go on in detail about visions. Sounds impressive. They're they're hedging their argument by saying, look at all these things that, that I'm getting from God, therefore I am a spiritual leader. Listen to me. I have angelic visitations. And they instruct me on what you should do to be a better Christian. They sound impressive. And they, they, they do this through this false humility. Saying, oh, we, we, we don't dare go to God directly. We would never do that. We don't suppose that we are so great that we can go directly to God. Therefore, we go to angelic intermediaries. That means we're humble. We're so humble, we know that we can't go to God. And, and, and what's astounding to me is they're rejecting the one who has made a way for us to go directly into the throne room of grace. The only mediator that we need is the God-man, Jesus Christ. And by them saying that they could only go to their intermediary angels, they're denying the sufficiency of Christ's work and the promise that he's given us. And Paul says in verse 18, these guys are puffed up. That means arrogant, boastful, proud. And he says, but without cause. By their fleshly, sensuous there means fleshly, earthly mindedness. And we can see the evidence of their earthly thinking here in this text, right? It's very clear. Can you see it? How do you know that these guys were earthly? They didn't worship Jesus. They worshiped angels. You, you can't become any more earthly-minded than that, denying Christ's worship and giving it to his creatures, which is forbidden in Scripture. 
can only worship God and him alone. That's how earthly minded these men were. And so Paul's saying, let no mystic disqualify you. Let him not try to defraud you. Stop him from defrauding you by saying you will not grow spiritually unless you are connected to his ministry, his teaching, his disciplines. Verse 19, he tells us to take heart. Because he says in verse 19, these guys aren't holding fast to the head from whom the whole body is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. These guys, these guys aren't connected to God. They're separated from God. The whole body is connected to the head. They've denied the head. They go to angels instead for their visions and directions. He's telling the whole church here, take heart. You're held together equally by God's means of grace, not some mystical experience. He wants the church to know that, that you'll be nourished, not through these things, but through God's means, God's means of grace. I want to show you what I mean by that, that phrase, God's means of grace that God gives us, God's means of favor toward us to make us more like Christ. So go with me to 2 Timothy 3.14. In Colossians 2 Paul's telling us that the power of sanctification will not be found through these mystical experiences because here's why. We have already been given all the means of sanctification we need in Christ and in his transforming revelation that's in Scripture. The power of sanctification, church, comes through God's means of grace that is found in the Spirit's illumination of God's revelation. Understand that. That's the means of favor God's given us to make us more like Christ. He has given us His directions. We don't have to doubt them. They're not subjective. They're objective. They can be examined. They can be studied. They can be rejoiced in. And they are eternal words of direction. God sanctifies or sets us apart through His Spirit and His Word. We need nothing else. That's what Paul's telling us in Colossians, and that's what Paul tells us here in 2 Timothy 3.14. Speaking to Timothy, Paul writes, and Timothy is a young pastor here at Ephesus, he writes, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Here in this passage, Paul's telling us a few things that we need to know. When it comes to growing in sanctification, God's given us the means we need right here in his word. He tells us here a few things, and you might jot this down. God's word alone guards us against spiritual instability and deception. It's all that we need to guard us against spiritual instability and deception. That's what he says there in 314. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, that is, the scriptures. He says, 
which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, he's dealing with false teachers here also in 2 Timothy who are trying to deceive people through their extra-biblical teachings. And Paul is saying, in the Scriptures, you have all that you need for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. This is what makes you stable. God's Word will guard you against deception. Whatever they're teaching, compare it to Scripture. It'll guard you. It'll guide you. And he's also saying, you need to do this continually. Abide in this. Abide, verse 14 says. Because this is God's normal means of sanctification. If you want to identify deception, if you want to protect yourself from deception, abide in the Scriptures daily. Spend time with God in His Word, talking to Him, thinking through what He has revealed to us here in the Scriptures. Rejoice over it. Pour over it. Live in it. Breathe it. Eat it. Drink it daily. That is God's normal means of sanctification. It's just not as impressive as saying that you had a vision, is it? Ooh, I had an experience. Well, all I did today was read 2 Timothy. But that's not as impressive as saying, God told me, you know, do this, do that, the other thing. But I'll tell you something. Those things that people say that God told them, if it's not in Scripture, um, it has no value at all. No value at all in putting away the sins in the flesh, of sanctifying your heart. But this word, it's living, and it's active, and it's able to transform the mind, the heart, and the life. He also says something there in verse 15b about God's word. He says God's word alone doesn't just guard us, it also guides us. It guides us. It gives us stability. It guided Timothy into the Old Testament Scriptures. All the Scriptures testify to Jesus. All the Scriptures, and in particular here he's speaking of the Old Testament that had already been written, which now would also include all the New Testament that we have. He says all these Scriptures point to salvation by faith in God's provision, not human traditions. He's saying God's Word gave you stability, spiritual stability. Timothy, Because it pointed you back to the foundation stone of your your faith, which is Christ. God's word is not like the shifting sands of men's traditions and experiences. Here we can stand in God's word and not be moved when the storms of life come. If you trust in the, the visions and experiences of men who say to you that all oh, this bad thing happening in your life is not God's will. It's not, it's not going to be God's will for you to go through this. You must have done something wrong. That man is a heretic for saying such a thing because Scripture says that God will be with us even in the dark, even in the fiery furnace, even in the affliction of Job. Right? Even as we think about the Apostle Paul even on the Roman road where he walked and bowed his head as a Roman soldier took it off. God was with him. God was with him in the good times and in the bad because that's what Scripture says. So lean not on intimidating words of men. Lean on God's word to guide you. Now, in verse 16 here, 
Paul tells us that God's word alone doesn't just guard and guide. It also grounds. It also grounds our faith sufficiently and practically. Look what it says. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and reproof, correction, training. He's saying that these breathed out words of God, these living words of God, these theonoustos is the Greek term, these living words, they're alive and they're active. And they're at work in the redeemed man or woman's heart. They are going to change you. They're going to teach you. They're going to reprove you. They're going to correct you. They're going to train you in righteousness. This is the means of grace that God has given us to sanctify us. Not legalism, not mysticism, not asceticism. He says God's word is sufficient to teach us. You see that? God's word is sufficient to give us proper Knowledge of who God is and what Christ has done and what God provides. Teaching is the passing on of doctrinal knowledge that leads to practical godliness. Your understanding of God's word, his doctrine, affects how you live practically in this world. Again, that's what chapter 3 in Colossians tells us, 3.17. Look over there real quickly. Just keep your finger in Timothy. But look at this in uh, Colossians 3.17. He says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. All right, what he's saying there is this. Whatever you do practically in word or deed, that means practically, right? Your whole life, the way you live, the way you interact, the way you you feed your faith, the way you, you go to work, the way you interact with your friends. Whatever you do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's doctrine. How do you do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus unless you know something about Jesus? How do you give thanks to God the Father unless you have proper doctrine about God being your Father? And to go further in this, I'm not going to read it now, but 18 to 22, after giving all this doctrine to us about Christ from chapters 1 and 2 and half through 3, he says, now, wives, husbands, children, employers, employees, here's how you're supposed to live practically. But the practice comes after the doctrine of Christ. That's what he's saying in Timothy, in 2 Timothy 3, 16. God's word is profitable to prepare us, to to teach us how to live godly in Christ Jesus presently in this age. It's also able to reprove us. You see that there in Timothy 3, 16? Reprove means that it will strengthen us By pointing out error in our hearts. Reproving means that we need some correcting. God's word will reprove. He'll strengthen our pursuit of holiness because it will point out the sin in our hearts. It'll point out error in our thinking. And it will help us understand and discern deceptive teachings. It reproves our heart, our mind, and then our actions follow. Haven't you ever been reading Scripture, thinking that you're living a pretty decent life, thinking that you're doing pretty good today? And then you read this text and you say, God, I can't do that. I'm not doing that. Why am I not doing that? 
Why have I fallen so short of your glory here? I want to do this. That's the word and the spirit working in the believer's heart to reprove, to point out the sin. The Holy Spirit doesn't condemn us. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But the Holy Spirit comes to convict us through the written revelation in Scripture. That's your normal means of sanctification, church. Not a mystical experience. Not the warm fuzzies. Not a voice in your head. It's the voice of God. The voice of God here is what brings reproof that sets you free to rejoice in Christ. Verse 16 goes on to tell us that the word of God is also sufficient to correct us. That's not just pointing out sin anymore. Now, correction is the positive act of restoration. Once the error is pointed out through reproof and we've been pointed back to God's word to direct us, that there is a promise here of restoration for those who are in Christ Jesus. Correction comes to remind us of that. It's, it's telling us that your, your life is now hidden in Christ. Therefore, now you want to walk this way because you see where you've fallen short. You rejoice now in the truth that Christ paid your penalty. And you can live without guilt according to scriptures as they correct us, as they direct us. Verse 16 goes on to tell us that it's God's word alone that's sufficient to train us in righteousness. Or you could say it this way, too. It's God's word alone that will cultivate the application of the truth in our hearts and our lives. Practically speaking, spiritual sanctification comes through the proper application of God's word as it washes our hearts, our minds, our souls, and it cultivates in us this joy and this thanksgiving for what Christ has accomplished. And that produces godliness, a desire for holiness. It trains us in the ways that please God. It shows us, shows us how Christ pleased God on our behalf and how we want to follow his directions, follow him humbly and thankfully for what he's given to us. There in 3.17, Paul writes that the man of God is given all this so that he would be competent or like the other translation is, is complete. So the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. He's, he's doing all this. His word is doing all this to make us equipped, competently equipped for every good work. Not, not through an experience, not through legalism, not through asceticism, but through this instruction that is in Scripture. We are made complete and that we are made equipped to do good works. The Word of God. The Word of God makes us equipped. It sets us apart to do good works. The Word of God is all we need to be spiritually nourished or strengthened. His Word alone will nourish all those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, right? And we know that because His Word gave life to those who were dead in their sins and trespasses. And I hope you can testify to that. If his word had the power to call the dead to life, it certainly has the power to call those who are living in Christ on to holiness. It is sufficient. 
We need nothing else. So Paul says back in Colossians 2, 18 and 19, that we should not let anyone disqualify us, especially those who aren't holding to the head, who gave us the means of grace himself, his inscripturated words. God gave us his word to secure us and to, to show us his immutable work in Christ, his unchanging work in Christ that will be completed by his grace in all those he has saved. He's given us that as a means of grace, but that's not the only means of grace. According to his word, he's given another means of grace to the church, and that is the church. It's not just the spirit and the word, but it's also the fellowship of the saints that God's given to us as a means of sanctification. That's what we celebrated this morning at the Lord's table. That was a means of the church's sanctification. Calling us to remember our sins, reconcile our relationships, come with one voice to glorify God as a church and worship Jesus. God's word nourishes the church's pursuit of Christ-likeness in a very particular way, I believe, in Scripture, as Scripture tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5. God nourishes our pursuit of Christ-likeness through the encouragement of the united church family. As the church is united in the truth, in doctrine, in faith, practically the church begins to walk in that through encouragement in the body. And that produces Christ-likeness in the church and sanctifies us. Here in 1 Thessalonians 5, 11 to 23, you can see that. Paul writes, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Now, how does he surely do it? Well, through the means of grace he just told us about. Through this interaction and application of the things that we are learning in the body. It's not enough to have orthodoxy. You have to have orthopraxy. It's the living out of the word that does the ongoing work in the church to set us apart. To serve Christ, to glorify him in the world, and to be his body, his ambassadors. Here in, in Thessalonians, Paul's admonishing us to encourage one another as a means of grace. And he's doing it in the context of personal protection, the church's protection here. He's telling the church at Thessalonica, 
I want you to be united so that you'll be protected from these false teachers that were coming in there and starting to divide the church up, saying the day of the Lord's already come. He's saying, no, listen, here's how you're going to avoid such men as this, how you're going to refute such men as this. You're going to focus on what God has given you in the scriptures, and you're going to encourage one another in that. Let me show you what I mean. He tells us to put on Christ's love practically here and personally in this as a means of grace in verses 11 to 13. He says there that encouragement should nourish Christ-like peace in the body. Look what it says. Encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you to esteem them very highly in love, in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Encouragement is meant to cultivate peace, Christ-like peace in the body. Here in verse 14, he says that that encouragement includes something called admonition or admonishment. And admonishment means to warn others through biblical instruction. Now, if you want peace in the body, if you want a Christ-like unity, you need to have admonishment being practiced, right? It needs to be done biblically. When you have people admonishing one another in the body, that's a form of encouragement. When you see a weak brother, a brother who's struggling, or a brother who's in sin, and you go to them with Scripture and you point them to the gospel, remind them of their redemption, that's admonishment. And that cultivates peace and encouragement in the church. It encourages the idol, you see there. Admonish the idol. The idol is one who is out of step. Basically not walking with the rest of the church, setting back, holding himself back, herself back. And admonishment calls that person back in line biblically so they don't cause divisions or stunt the church of the growth and God's purposes. Verse 15 tells us that encouragement also encourages or it nourishes rather uh, compassion in the body of Christ. He says, encourage the faint hearted. In other words, don't leave the weak brother and sister behind they're 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 still in the church though they're somewhat helpless at times they're faint-hearted build them up edify them comfort those who are weak in faith those who are prone to wander into spiritual deception encourage the feeble is what he's saying those who are weakened by sin or a lack of biblical understanding church if, if you want to see sanctification take place in your life Seek the good of others in the church. If you you seek to encourage and admonish the idol here, trust me, God will cultivate holiness in you practically. When you seek to put self away and seek others as more significant than yourself, there's a great work of holiness taking place because you look like Jesus. That magnifies Christ in the church. Did he not encourage the faint-hearted? Does he not encourage us by this testimony in Scripture that we read over and over again about how he comes to the leper, how he comes to the defiled person and he touches them and he loves them and he embraces them? If he does that for the outcast, should we not do that for one another in the church to see them 
brought into line biblically so they could magnify Jesus through their life. Verse 15 goes on to say, we need to help the weak. Help the weak. Be patient with them. I like how he puts that in there. Be patient with the weak. The weak are the ones who try your patience. It's just the way it is. The person who's always lagging behind, the person who's always saying, I can't do this, I can't do that. You, for, the, for the go-getter, it's really hard to deal with somebody like that. I mean, you're like, come on, get in line. If you don't get in line, I'm leaving you. No, he says, don't do that. Be patient with them. Patiently help. Patiently support those who are weak in faith. And actually, in the Greek here, it means latch on. Latch on to them. Don't let go of them. Jesus died for them. They're your brother. They're your sister in Christ. Help them. Latch on to them. Love them. Be patient with them. Paul is an example of one who did that with Timothy. I mean, Timothy... He was given this great commission to to pastor the church at Ephesus. Yet he was intimidated and he was weak in his faith. And Paul comes along and says, Timothy, I remember, I remember the faith that is in you, that was in your mother and your grandmother. Don't be ashamed of me or the gospel. Stir up those coals that are in there. He was patient with Timothy. He worked with Timothy. He helped those who are, you help those who are weak in faith. Now here in 5.16, he goes on to say, not only help them, but seek them. Run swiftly after those who need help. Rejoice with them, he says, and pray with them and give thanks with them as they grow together in these trials that they face in life. Church, if we do this, it will nourish Christ-like progressive purity in the church. And this is God's normative means of sanctification. He goes on to tell us that we should not ever forget this. Never neglect God's means. Look at 19 to, to down to 24 or so. He says, don't, don't quench the Spirit. In other words, don't suppress the Holy Spirit's direction. Don't suppress God's Word with human wisdom. Don't try to use man's wisdom to help your brother and sister. Don't suppress the Holy Spirit's direction. Don't suppress God's Word. Don't despise prophecy. Prophecy here is not talking about telling the future. It's talking about preaching the word. Don't, don't reject the word of God being proclaimed. Listen to it. You need it. But test everything. Test the word. Test what the preacher says. Test what the guy is saying in the pulpit. Hold fast to what is biblical. It's good. Abstain from every form of evil. Abstain from anything that would lead you away from unbiblical instructions. These are God's means of sanctification here, church. This is meant to build us up in the faith and to equip us for every good work. There is nothing mentioned here of an esoteric, mystical experience. God's means of grace are tangible in his word, understandable in his word, and lived out in his church, caring for one another, encouraging one another. His means of grace that are given to us in Scripture and guided to us in Scripture will progressively sanctify us. And they will also sustain what legalism and mysticism and asceticism cannot sustain in our hearts. God's means of grace will sustain a joy-driven sanctification, a joy-driven spiritual motivation to exalt Jesus and to love the saints and to apply the truth 
It'll be your passion and you'll be driven by it. If that's not in your heart, I need you to examine yourself today to see if you are in the faith. Do you long for the glory of Christ to be magnified in your life? Do you long to give your life to others to see Jesus magnified in their lives? If you don't, you need to examine your heart and repent and trust in what God has given us to not just save us, but to continually work in us to magnify his son through our lives. Now, let me end with this. Let me end with going back to Colossians 2, 20 to 23. So we can see the third point that I mentioned earlier. Here in this passage, 20 to 23, Paul not just boldly or powerfully proclaims something, he carefully reveals that number three, the practice of asceticism does not sustain spiritual motivation in the Christian's heart. Listen to what it says. And and understand verse 20, that word if can be and probably should be translated since. If or since with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that will all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Now understand, an ascetic person is one who seeks to live a life of harsh self-denial in order to obtain or sustain holiness. That's what monasteries are built on. But here in this text, Paul is saying asceticism is actually carnal. It's fleshly. It's not spiritual at all. It's human thinking. It's elementary thinking. It's part of the world system of religion that's based on what you can do or what you shouldn't do to make yourself a better person. In other words, he's saying asceticism is like this. They're saying to you, live right, abstain from pleasures, set up harsh regulations, and then you can sustain purity of life through your self-denial. But he says, actually, that's of no value at all when it comes to changing the heart. Only Christ dominating the heart can stop that. That's what he, really what he says there in this passage. In this passage, he's carefully stating that the sustaining power of spiritual motivation is fueled by the reality of Christ's resurrection, not asceticism, not self-effort. We are no longer trying to be holy We are now, as Christians, responding to God's promised holiness that is ours by faith in Christ's victory, not in what we do. Now we pursue holiness out of joy, out of thankfulness to magnify our Redeemer. That's why he says there in verse 20, if or since you died, meaning you're now alive, Now you're alive in Christ. You're you're no longer condemned. Why are you still living like a person who's trying to earn God's favor through do not handle, do not touch, do not taste, following rules and regulations? 
He's saying these things look spiritually impressive on the outside, but inwardly they're vain. They can't do what the Holy Spirit has promised and guaranteed he would do when God regenerates us. Look at Hebrews 10 real quickly as I conclude. Here in Hebrews 10, 12 to 25, we see the power, the resurrected power of Christ compared to the asceticism of the false teachers in Colossae. One is of no value whatsoever. The other, Christ's resurrected power, is of great value because there are things that happen to the inward man through Christ's resurrection that change the way we live, change our directions. Look what it says here in 10.12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. There is nothing mentioned in there about what we have to do. He has completed the work. Now, he also makes it clear as we read further down that that work will have practical implications in those that he has completed. Those who he has died for and redeemed and had guaranteed glorified sanctification. He says they'll actually actually be changed practically because he goes further down to say this. Verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Now there's a transformation from the inside out. And he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. For where, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering of sin. Therefore, so, in other words, guys, brothers, because of this great promise... This inward application of the Holy Spirit writing his laws upon our hearts and our minds. Since we know this, he says, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, not by our works, not by anything we bring to God. He says, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, through his harsh treatment of himself. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, a transformed heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And, and, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. He's saying the motivation for this encouragement, the motivation for this ongoing meeting together and stirring one another up to, to good works is the reality of Christ's resurrected promise and the reality that his word And his desires are now written on our hearts. That's what motivates us to live a sanctified life now as Christians. This is our internal desire now. And the joy of that desire overflows into our actions and the application of walking in obedience. 
because we want to magnify Jesus. We look forward to the day he comes. Aren't you excited about the day that he comes? On that day, you can have absolute assurance that you will be received by him and forever cared for by him. And, and knowing that, should that not change the way we respond to sin? We don't want to be living in sin when he comes. Not because we fear condemnation, but because we have already been raised up with him. It's already been forgiven. Why would I want to live in the gutter when I have a promise of home in heaven? Paul says this throughout this text in Colossians as a, as a motivating factor. In 3, 1 to 4, that's what he, really what he's getting down to. He's saying there in this text, If or since you have been raised up with Christ, keep focused on that. Keep your minds fixed on Jesus and you'll walk and seek and pursue what pleases him. Not to obtain his pleasure, not to obtain his favor, but because you've been given it. If you set your minds on the promises of God that are in Christ, it will motivate your lives to live in holiness. That's his point. All these other things cannot do this. It cannot motivate an internal desire for us to follow Jesus Practically and willfully and joyfully. Saints, it's not ascetic practices that sustains joy-driven sanctification. It's the work of Christ that does that. True sanctification is sustained and it is motivated by thanksgiving over Christ's completed work. The severity of his punishment. The glory of his resurrection the promise of his coming. That's what transforms us. That's what conforms us into his image and causes us to want to walk in holiness. Just remember that when people try to intimidate you spiritually by telling you you're not as spiritual as them because you don't have their experiences. Remember that it's Christ's work alone that secures eternal salvation. And it's his word and his spirit alone that strengthens our sanctification and it's his promise alone that sustains the joy in our hearts that motivates us to walk in holiness for the glory of his name and for the good of others. Now I pray that you will be edified by that and equipped by that and not be disqualified by anyone who tells you otherwise. And I also pray this morning that if there's anyone here who is yet to experience this hope and this truth that's found in Christ, that today would be the day of your redemption. That you would repent of your sins. You would see your sins as God sees your sins and you would confess them to him and that you would call upon him to save you. Turn from your sins. Trust in God's provision to save sinners that is found in Christ's sacrifice alone. Because if you do that, if that happens, just know that that's God at work in you, calling you, bringing you to the fount of salvation that's found in Jesus. Rejoice in that this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word is all sufficient to save to sanctify us, to bring us to the truth so that we would walk in holiness out of joy over our forgiveness, 
out of joy over what you have guaranteed that you will complete in us and over joy over the means of grace that you have given to continually conform us and protect us and guide us here as we work together on this earth to declare the goodness of Christ alone. I pray this day you would be glorified in Christ's name. Amen.